this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampath this year's edition of the united nations climate summit cop 28 concluded in dubai earlier this week it began with a lot of expectations especially on the key issue of phasing out fossil fuels in the end a deal seems to have been worked out to transition away from fossil fuels so what exactly does the dubai consensus as this agreement has been called what does it exactly entail what are the other major takeaways from this summit and what progress if any has been made on a key issue of climate justice given the extremely slow and uh, famously limited progress in cop meetings that we have had so far where decisions are based on consensus what are the alternative modes of collective decision making that we could be looking at as well we discuss all these questions and more in this issue of in focus and we have with us kanchi kohli who's a researcher in environment law and governance and co-author of the book development of environmental laws in india kanchi thank you so much for joining us now uh, thank you for having me uh, always a pleasure to be on this uh, on this podcast great so uh, to start with i was just wondering kanchi so cop 28 has concluded with uh, with this deal uh, which has been hailed by some people as historic but there are also critics who are saying that not enough uh, has been done there are a lot of loopholes so basically it seems to talk about transitioning away from fossil fuels rather than phasing out uh, fossil fuels so is this really a significant step forward because people say fossil fuels were never mentioned in any deals or agreements before and what kind of uh, commitments uh, if any does this agreement this dubai consensus entail yeah i mean so i definitely think it's a it's a very important moment for us to uh, to really uh, stock take on on how the cops themselves have progressed and how the discourse itself has progressed and if you see the outcome of uh, the the primary uh, the big chunk of how the energy transition uh, has been envisaged uh, uh, as part of the global stock take and other other kinds of conversations it's 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 very significant that what we see in front of us is almost like um uh, you know it's almost like a it, the the global stock trade commits to everything so it's uh, there is something for everybody to deal with but the prioritization is is you know is is what we need to really uh, get deeper into for instance it can you know it it uh it really brings together some of the biggest conundrums ar- around uh, the use of energy what nature of energy all those kinds of things very much as part of the you know uh, the the outcomes for instance it says uh, it talks about um, phasing down of unabated coal it talks about transitioning away from fossil fuels it talks about increasing renewable energy capacity it also uh, endorses the use of transitional fuels like natural gas now this gives the impression that uh, or, or the understanding that the people in the room were okay with countries deciding uh, the mix the energy mix that they want to use provided the ultimate goal of net zero is met so you know the pool of res- so nothing 
was blacklisted in the sense. Uh, the gain, of course, which countries like India has been pushing for and it's on the table now is that it, it puts coal at par with uh, other fossil fuels. So there are definitely some gains that have been made, but it very clearly you know, brings out uh, that nothing is going to be off the table. There is going to be investment in all kinds of uh, uh, you know, energy technologies, all forms of energy uh, generation projects. And it will, uh, it will, it will, it will also then throw up very significant challenges to domestic governments on how they will want to regulate it. Uh, in in some ways, you know, this also reflects, uh, you know, uh, the the pool of people who have driven this entire this COP. It's basically, um, and which is which in in some ways the geopolitical situations worldwide has has made sure that. Uh, some of this is acceptable uh, to uh, to the conversations. For instance, uh, corporations, governments who uh, who who will be able to take forward coal, gas, renewable uh, energy, or critical minerals projects are really dominating uh, the conversation. Investors who can invest in these industries and infrastructure projects have dominated uh, these uh, these conversations. So I think uh, it's it is it is historic. It's significant because it is. It marks a shift from, uh, in you know, you know, shift from the push that was there. That you know, the focus on certain forms of fuel, the focus on um, that there is an urgency, and that's why certain action needs to be taken. It is. It's seeming like all of it is going to be, uh, you know, in the mix for countries to be able to decide how they want to go forward, and that becomes a big, huge uh, economic development question. Right. I mean, I mean, uh, I was just curious about the kind of language uh, we find in this. You know, I mean, you you're talking about phasing, uh, phasing out, and trans, phasing not not even phasing out, transitioning and accelerating, and you know, uh, unabated versus you know, I mean, these kinds of incremental kind of responses are they really uh, serious? Are they do they constitute a serious response to? A threat which is really serious. I mean, uh, I one can imagine why someone like Greta Thunberg would want to boycott it. I mean, she's not the only one who's boycotted it. But to what extent do we look at these come these uh, these kinds? Of, it's not even a commitment. It's more, like you said, every country and every party, so to speak, of this has been given a lot of leeway to come up with their own mix. And there, uh, don't you think there is there isn't enough of uh, what should I say? leeway again for those who don't have the kind of uh, privileges and uh, uh, which let us say the industrialized uh, countries may have uh, if you talk about a concept like carbon space for example you know amount of carbon which can be there in the atmosphere without you know increasing uh, climate change crisis so to speak that's not really available for everybody in an equal sense. It's already been used up by one particular section, the developed countries already. So in this kind of a scenario, when you're going to be talking incrementally, uh, isn't that ne- doesn't that necessarily mean that some parties are going to suffer more and some parties are going to suffer less? No, absolutely. In fact, that is why if you if you if one has to shift the gaze and see this entire discourse not from the energy and energy technology or uh, or the carbon emissions point of view but also try and see it from the point of view of how 
you know, climate justice issues need to be understood or, or use a human rights framing uh, to understand what is happening uh, with, with, the, with the climate discourse or actually go back to the original uh, discussions around some version of sustainable development within which climate uh, climate change was one of the uh, conventions that needed to address the uh, the big big uh, sustainable development conundrums. I think it's important to also bring back some of those uh, those framings and lenses in the mainstream discussions around uh, climate change. Uh, unless and until that has happened, because some of those are there in, at COPS, but they are peripheral. Uh, and they're they're not uh, front and center. At front and center, it's about business, it's about projects, it's about policies that are talking about uh, energy shifts. All of which is important, but you cannot do that in isolation for from the other more fundamental or equally fundamental uh, concerns that are you know that are, that that are considered to be um, something that you will deal with when you roll out. Uh, energy generation projects. So you, you said that the the projects, projects and businesses and so on, renewables, etc. For example, in carbon markets, for instance, these are all center stage. What about livelihoods? I mean, aren't livelihoods a part of the mainstream uh, discourse? No, so the, it is. But if you see, like for instance, the critiques that are coming out or the the analysis that is coming out, uh, not just from this COP but even earlier, is to say that the points about how the climate crisis, also the, the focus on adaptation or the focus on loss and damage, uh, the focus on um, how uh, new climate technologies will also address, uh, you know, hit livelihoods, like say, say critical minerals or other kinds of things. If, if all that happens, uh, how much of that is being, is really front and center of the stock take? That's that's very crucial to have at the front and center of the stock take. Otherwise, it seems like a very sanitized, uh, you know, uh, text which says, "Okay, we know climate change is a problem. We know we we have to keep to the 1.5 degrees uh, warming target, uh, but all the actions are in the form of saving businesses rather than saving the world." Right. I mean, there is uh, clearly a disjunction here. Now, moving away from uh, from the text of of, of the UAE uh, or the Dubai consensus, what are the uh, other takeaways, big takeaways from your from your understanding, your perspective, especially on questions of uh, climate finance, loss and damage fund? On the first day, there was a big uh, headline about the launch of the loss and damage fund, which I thought was already. Uh, done and dusted, so to speak, except for the money, in the COP27 last year. And also the energy transitions of uh, poorer countries. What are the takeaways on these three uh, big ticket issues? Yeah, I think that, I mean, if we, there there are lots of discussions that did take place at the COP um, from what one could track. And uh, if, if one breaks it down to the four, uh, four in, in some senses, four pillars uh, of discussions, one is, of course, around the establishment of the loss and damage fund, which is very, is, it's extremely significant. It's it's important that this issue is acknowledged. There has also been money uh, that has been committed to it, but you can you can see uh, coalitions and alliances around loss and damage that have automatic. You know, this happened on the first day, and then uh, during the rest of the time, a lot of push was made, and 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 uh, discussion was on the fact that it's not enough. 
because a large part of uh, uh, or a significant part of this fund uh, is going to be around creating the funding arrangements and not really the fund that is available for addressing loss and damage. Uh, so a lot more money needs to be put on the table. Uh, yet it's definitely it's something that is it's a huge acknowledgement. So one can't take that away from the COP, COP itself. There are discussions about whether the loss and damage fund should be handled by institutions like the World Bank, uh, where uh, um, where there is there have been historical problems that communities have had. So these debates have really come up. But the the loss and damage as an as an issue as a climate justice issue. As a human rights issue, actually, definitely did was was part of the narrative, and it, it is it is definitely an important development. Uh, the global stock take in itself uh, was important because it didn't take away from uh, the fact that we are dealing with uh, there is a climate uh, urgency. It didn't take away from the fact that we are really running late when it comes to uh, you know addressing some of the the concerns so it definitely is a was it was an important uh, outcome of course uh, it was what what really came out later was that several um, um, you know countries that that had a different perspective were not in the room when the final stock take was announced so all those kinds of things are very much part of uh, the you know the the cop uh, the the cop drama that took place um, and which probably comes up uh, year after year on climate finance uh, i think there's been a lot of uh, and and i think a lot more literature is and analysis is going to emerge because climate finance became a huge uh, vex topic uh, and and in some senses that is where um, countries were saying that let us uh, you know let us move the way we want to as towards uh, net zero because um, you know developed countries were not putting down uh, climate finance to compensate countries for missing out on uh, development trajectory certain kind of development trajectories or energy choices um, and without that nobody's going to uh, you know step back from the development aspirations that they have set for themselves so uh, th that became an issue as i said uh, there was analysis that uh, uh, a lot less is there on for climate ad adaptation funds which is which is extremely important although the global stock take says that you need to make adaptation plans all those kinds of things but where is the money to do it uh, and uh, I think those will become uh, important uh, negotiating points uh, going ahead. Uh, are the other uh, the other thing that uh, did not uh, was a, was a bit of a uh, flux and I did not go through was uh, the issue of uh, uh, voluntary carbon markets. In fact, the um, it, it's uh, analysis that has come out basically talks about how the EU. Uh, had basically raised a lot of integrity issues on uh, voluntary carbon markets. In fact, the proposed carbon trading rules were not adopted as part of this whole thing. So, uh, in it has a, is a it has a huge bearing on the way uh, carbon offsets will be framed in nationally determined com uh, you know uh, uh, commitments of countries because uh, a lot of countries were hinging a lot on offsets and carbon markets too offset the emission loss that they're not able to deal with uh, emissions reduction. So it's going to all play out in the next few months and a uh, couple of years. Uh, and uh, it will be very interesting to follow it closely uh, in terms of uh, what uh, what has what these new what are the new challenges that uh, the COP has thrown up? 
Right. I mean, uh, speaking of you know the loss and damage fund, you mentioned that uh, the World Bank is the one who's, who's which is going to administer it. Wouldn't that then uh, again mean that uh, the the biggest donors to the World Bank, which is the U.S. and uh, other uh, OECD countries, they would be in control of that fund rather than the rec- receiving countries, the ones who are going to need that fund. Yes, I think it's it's one about the how much the global north would control the fund. That is one, and then a lot of will depending on what the kind of funding arrangement will look like. Uh, you know, eventually, but definitely uh, there there is that that concern. The other concern that researchers have already started raising is that will this be in the form of debt funds and not grants? And I think um, that is an important thing to look at because if this comes to countries, you know, as as uh, as loans instead of uh, you know compensations or grants, then that will become um, you know a, a much more difficult thing for countries that are already suffering the losses and are already suffering um, you know the consequences uh, to uh, and with with have not having that historical role uh, that they've played in causing the problem as much. Um, it's going to be, become a bigger challenge because they're not going to be able to deal with it uh, very much. I think some some African countries have already started saying that, that that we will be able to contribute to net zero only if you write off our existing debts and if they can't get into further debt traps through this uh, this thing. So I, this this thing is already being spoken about. The fact is how much of it that is is taken on board when we when we are um, envisaging what is the way forward to address uh, uh, you know the climate crisis right i mean it, it, the climate crisis is also in a sense uh, an economic crisis uh, you know clearly now you earlier spoke about uh, you made a reference to uh, climate justice uh, uh, country and i was wondering i was reading uh, some of the reports and i think nelson mandela's granddaughter was one of the delegates and she spoke of climate apartheid how it completely fits the, the the original template of you know uh, racial apartheid in South Africa. Can you talk a little bit about how this uh, this concept how how it came about? Like what does it really mean uh, climate apartheid? Uh, because it's a, it's a very powerful uh, origin uh, the entire concept of apartheid and how does it fit into this climate justice discourse? Very broadly, if I would understand it, um, and I'm sure there are different, um, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot out there um, that really deals with this concept. But very broadly, climate apartheid can be understood as a systemic or institutional order through which, uh, you know, existence or furtherance of uh, disproportionate vulnerabilities are allowed to continue or new ones are you know, given rise to. So, for instance, uh, it applies to how the history of how this crisis really came into being, as well as how the future climate policies are designed to create more vulnerabilities or displace uh, populations that are already vulnerable. So, I, in in some senses, it's the it's the elite who can use their money to buy, um, you know, a technology. To deal deal with heat or uh, pollution, etc., or or move away, whereas um, you know you have policies that are uh, further going to make certain populations vulnerable to uh, say sea erosion or uh, or for that matter exposure to heat or uh, living with pollution, etc. So in some senses, it is the it's a, it's a very powerful um, uh, you know framing as you said. 
to be able to put front and center that no matter what kind of uh, investment and economic and developmental paradigm that you might draw into the the climate discourse if it is going to be discriminatory in nature uh, against those who have had the least uh, to you know uh, least contribution to the crisis and if you add uh, issues of race gender and other intersectional issues to it uh, it brings out uh, it's a, it's in some senses is globalizing the question of uh, environmental injustices which were part front and center of some of the oldest environmental movements so um, if you apply that lens onto a lot of what is being proposed out of the cops or or how we how countries are even framing their nationally determined contributions uh it would be important to see uh in orders for instance in order to um continue a certain level of emissions uh to manage your net net zero book uh, bookkeeping uh where are the offsets really lying uh you know uh, do you really need to create new kinds of harms or for 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 renewable energy and expansion where are those geographies what kind of marginal lands are being used uh, which are more common property resources etc so i think all of it together in many ways um, really feeds into the idea of climate apartheid and i think it it, it is it's a it's a powerful way of uh, reviewing um, the outcomes of the processes right i mean i think that's a that's a pretty detailed uh, un, uh, unpacking of uh, what climate apartheid uh, means i appreciate that uh, thank you kanchi for that and i, I was also thinking you know uh, uh, you spoke about you know the structural or systemic issues you know and there are uh, structural and systemic uh, reproductions of privilege you know which uh, which tend to happen if your if your solution processes are completely are predominantly market driven because there are uh, the opportunities are not equal in a market framework and uh, you know uh, there, there have been people talking about how even within a particular country we spoke about uh, the historical injustices between the richer countries and the poorer countries the global north and south but even within the global north or within the global south i think how vulnerable you are to impacts of climate change is to a large extent determined by Uh, whether you can buy solutions from the market to protect you, you know, with regard to your vulnerability. So in that in that sense, the poor, the rich poor divide within a particular country also determines, you know, how they are going to be impacted by uh, climate change. And I think this is where the concept of uh, climate apartheid, uh, I mean, gains traction. Uh, in any case, uh, one final question, uh, Kanchi, before we uh, wind up, we're running out of time. Now we have we have we have seen that. Uh, the i think only in two two cops we have had like clear progress in terms of a you know, definitive forward momentum which is at paris and kyoto and and dubai i don't know we'll have to wait and see what impact it has but seeing that we are in cop 28 and only two or three of these meetings have yielded uh, you know like substantial uh, momentum forward i was just wondering you know also these meetings have a lot of fossil fuel lobbies and other industrial lobbying groups you know who have a powerful say and and they can veto i mean one out of 200 members can veto an agreement you know so are there alternative modes of collective decision making uh, that not just in cop but communities elsewhere too you know uh, which are who are concerned about climate action Uh, can they can they pursue different modes of engagement that are not 
uh, at the mercy of a consensus of 200 parties you know because climate change is not going to wait and you know wait for consensus before it strikes there is no consensus before a drought or a flood or a famine strikes a country or a community so there isn't so much time you know the luxury of time for every single uh, party in this so called uh, conference of parties so can you talk a little bit about other modes of uh, of making progress apart from just cop see i think we have to go back to see number one what i what i've been just thinking and i i would want to put forward as an, as a thought is that uh, we have to go back to a time where uh, the UNFCCC was one of the conventions under the Rio summit to address something much that was much bigger. The Rio summit promised us a, a form of sustainable development along with good regulation, good governance mechanisms, uh, procedural principles like access to justice, public participation, all of which were, it was almost like a, it was, it was offering a holistic package. And we've seen how that holistic package has been challenged in, in as, as countries have progressed to implement it. Uh, so in some senses, we have to be able to go back to some of those principles to design uh, how, uh, whether it's climate action on its own or climate-related action with respect to uh, biodiversity or des desertification or poverty reduction, all those kinds of larger narratives that were very much part of the discourse back in the 1990s uh, have to be still, you know, you have to, you, you have to bring it back into the question rather than just leaving it to a emission-centric uh, conversation. So once you do that, then I think we are able to, to be able to, one number one, approach the whole subject in, in a different way. Now, if you, if you keep that as one point, the other point is the efficacy of the COPs itself. And I think this question is coming up, especially after the last two COPs and where the next COP is going to be held, is that how much can you rely on the COPs as a way forward? The answer to some of the clock by the uh, COP veterans has been that COP was never meant to give you all the answers. COP was meant to give broad directions, uh, broad binding targets, uh, you know, iterative sort of voluntary sort of commitments that countries were supposed to be making. So in many ways, what we need is different methodologies of regionally or, uh, you know, uh, or, or whether it's geographically or, or across uh, north-south. I think we need to be able to come uh, to, to have some of those equitable conversations. And I think people are putting forward some of the methodologies the question is, if there is a commitment to some of these questions uh, and these, these these kinds of lenses to be able to approach the climate crisis, if the climate crisis is seen as one among the many poly crises or the multiple planetary crises that uh, humanity is facing at this point of time, then we'll be able to come up with different methodologies and different kind of people in the room. It, it would shift the balance, flip the gaze, in the way uh, the the discussion is extremely emission centric, which requires certain kinds of finance and certain kinds of technology, and that's controlled by uh, large uh, large corporations, big governments um, who are not willing to uh, 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 you know give up space to be able to control it. Right. I mean, uh, thank you for that, uh, Kanchi. I think I appreciate uh, you pointing to this uh, this really uh, this big. Uh, 
what should I say, elephant in the room, so to speak, uh, where we are indeed uh, very much focused on emissions, but not in a way uh, that is too helpful when you're going to be uh, sort of uh, invisibilizing the other related uh, poly crisis, as you put it. I mean, you spoke about how uh, the, the business of carbon has sort of seems to tend to have taken center stage at the expense of, let's say, a climate-related biodiversity, climate-related desertification, climate-related environmental degradation, which, as you rightly pointed out, were at the center stage in the 1990s, but without anyone seem apparently noticing, they seem to have sort of moved somewhere to the margins. And we've got uh, this entire uh, conversation sort of uh, usurped by uh, the financing of uh, climate-related uh, businesses and projects which are important, uh, no doubt, uh, because uh, they they are uh, they have the what should I say the scale uh, in their favor if we want to move forward in climate mitigation. But nonetheless, I think uh, there is a little bit of uh, what should I say impoverishment of the discourse around uh, climate action because of this. And I think the next COP, which you refer to, which is going to happen in Azerbaijan, and there are already concerns about. You know, Russia is one of the biggest uh, fossil fuel uh, producing companies. I mean, its economy is dependent on uh, oil and gas. And uh, it's not going to be an easy uh, time for uh, climate activists, uh, etc. And, and as you said, COP is, of course, just a source of uh, guidelines and action is not necessarily going to be limited to it, nor should it be. And I think that's where uh, we need to leave off uh, for this uh, episode. Thank you so much once again, Kanchi, for joining us and for sharing your observations and uh, insights. Insight. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the great set of questions too. Helped me think through things. Thank you. Thank you. In Focus, we'll be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.